0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 24.
1: I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace.
0: What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some
1: of the branches are broken off, and you,
0: For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a
1: wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord.
2: Let's pray together. Father, such great truths about Israel and the Gentiles, we find in Romans 11, and we want to have these not just be historical realities, but the kind of teaching and the kind of truths that will walk away with us today. And so we pray that you would apply your word by your spirit. We acknowledge that unless you apply it by your spirit, nothing that I say and nothing that will be heard will fall on a heart prepared unless you ready it. And so please do that even now for your glory and for our good. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a confession to make on this Mother's Day. There were a few times, just a handful, just very few times in my lifetime, when my dad said to me, Mark, you have no idea how much your mother does for you. Now, usually that rebuke was in the context or was precipitated because of some way that I had taken my mom for granted. Perhaps not putting my clothes away, complaining about a dinner, annoyed that we ran out of milk, commenting on how late she was in picking me up. What happened is that my words revealed an entitlement mentality. Do You know what I'm talking about with an entitlement mentality? Moms, Do you know what I'm talking about with an entitlement mentality? Can I get a witness about the entitlement mentality? Here's your chance, here you go. No one's gonna do anything if you say amen right now. Only one mom said amen, that's all right. So what do I mean by an entitlement mentality? I mean this, is this kind of a mindset, a belief that's rooted in the understanding or in the assumption that you are inherently deserving of particular privileges or that you are deserving of special treatment. It's the frame of mind where you take something for granted. In my case as a kid, it was taking my mom and what she did for granted. So rather than thanking your mom that she's cleaned your laundry without you even noticing since January, you complain or worse, berate her when you open the drawer and don't see any socks and you say, Where are my socks? And what you don't realize is that your tone and the entitlement behind it is not only impolite, it's dangerous. Because she might introduce you to the washer and dryer. (laughs) Or worse, or better, be gone for a weekend, which I highly recommend to moms, or maybe an entire week, and it's amazing how when you come back, your kids realize how hard it really is to maintain the household with dad in charge. (laughs) So, an entitlement mentality. Look, look, this is true, is it not just for kids or as it relates to mom, it's just true across the board. As humans, we have a tendency towards entitlement. We begin to think that the gifts that we've received are things that we're owed. We begin to take people for granted, take things for granted, and it also happens in regards to our spiritual life. And today I wanna talk about this matter of spiritual entitlement. This is what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 11. Given what has happened to the people of Israel, the Gentiles might be tempted to look at Israel and what had happened to her down their nose in a way that's judgmental or to begin to view themselves as spiritually superior because they've received the gospel, they've received the finished work of Christ. But this also doesn't relate just to Israel and the Gentiles, this relates to us. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty easy, church, to develop a haughty heart you could read Romans 9 to 11 and think, oh, it's Israelites, what were they thinking? Or hear the story of the Gentiles today and think, we, we would never do that, and in fact, place ourselves in a pretty dangerous spiritual position. And so I wanna to talk today about this matter of spiritual entitlement by first looking at the, again, the story of Israel. What exactly happened with Israel? And then secondly, kind of what is the plan of God? What's he doing in all of this? And then third, so what does all of this mean? How can we learn from this? Because this is in our Bible, not just to make us feel better about ourselves or to help us know the historical facts of what has taken place. This is in our Bible in order to caution us about developing the mentality where we would assume that we would never be like the people of Israel, when in fact we're far more like them than we even care to admit. So what happened to Israel? The first 12 verses identify Israel's unbelief. If you're visiting today or you've not been a part of our series in Romans, or even Romans 9 to 11, you need to know that the problem with Israel was the fact that she didn't believe in the Messiah. She didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, she crucified him. And because of that, the focus of the redemption plan shifted from Israel to the Gentiles. And so Paul is rehearsing what happened with Israel not simply in order to tell us about the facts of what have happened, but because there's a warning that's implicit in here. Namely, that what happened to Israel can happen to anyone. And Gentiles who have received God's grace ought not get up on their high horse and think that would never happen to us. And 21st century Christians at College Park Church ought not think, this would never happen to me. This would never happen to us. I'd never reject the Messiah. I'd never have a hardened heart. Verse one, Paul begins by asking a question. Has God rejected his people? The the question is, has God just washed his hands of Israel? And and this, this comes in light of what we read last week in chapter 10 and verse 21 where God says in that particular text, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the idea is that God intends to be gracious to the people of Israel, but they're not responding. And so the question then, has God just, is he done with them? Is he just done with Israel? Has he totally shifted his plan and said, I'm done with this people, and now we're on to plan B? Paul answers that by no means. No, he says. And then gives a number of reasons as evidence of that. First, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul uses himself as exhibit A. Is God done with Israel? No, I, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm Jewish. That's his point. And secondly, in verse 2, he appeals to God's sovereignty. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That word rejected is the, the idea of turning away from or putting out. And he says, no, he hasn't rejected them. They were his It's chosen people. This idea that there's this remnant within Israel, that there's an Israel within Israel, that word for know means more than just know who would receive the Savior. It means more than that. It means to set one's love upon. So there's a sovereignty of God at work here. God hasn't rejected his people. He's still at work. He's still saving Jewish people, saving a small number of them, but saving them nonetheless, And then he appeals to the example of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Says in the second part of verse two, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. There's a moment in Elijah's life when he was terribly depressed because he felt like the whole nation had turned against him, he was all alone, and he kinda has a little bit of a pity party, saying, God, here I am, and, 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 and they've killed all your prophets, in fact, verse three says as such, Lord, they have killed all your prophets, they have demolished your altars, I alone have left, and they seek my life. Cue the depressing music. I mean, that's kind of the, the mentality that Elijah has. And then God speaks in 1 in, uh, Kings 19, and it's recorded here, where God says, in verse four, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's message to Elijah is, look, in the middle of your sort of um, self-absorption and your depression, you've got to realize that I'm doing something more than what you can see. That's always the case in history. God's always doing more than what you and I can see. always doing more in your kids' lives than what you can see, moms and dads. Always doing more in the culture than what you can really see. God's got people placed all over the world and Yet the reality is there's times, like with Israel, when it seems as though all is lost. And Paul says, no, it isn't, not as it relates to Israel. So verse five, he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So what's the hope for Israel? It's not Israel itself. In the same way, what's the hope for you? It's not you. The story of Israel is your story, it's my story, that our hope isn't in ourselves, it's that God in his kindness has wooed us to himself, and in the case of Israel, he has preserved a remnant, a a group of believers who have followed after Jesus, even though, as a whole, the nation has rejected Christ. So, what Paul intends to do in verses 1 to 12 here, or rather, verses 1 to 6, is to provide some level of reassurance that God is not rejected his people entirely, but he has preserved a remnant by divine election that God is sovereignly still calling individual people to follow after Jesus even in the midst of Israel. So it's not hopeless. So there's the assurance, or the reassurance. Now verses seven through 12 turn the corner a bit and give us a warning. And the warning mainly is about the problem of a hard heart. Let's see what we see here and what we can learn. What then, verse seven, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That word hardened is a word that we really need to listen to and take note of. You may not be familiar with that. It's designed to be a concept that frankly is a little scary. The hardness of heart is something that we've heard before in Romans 9, where, particularly in verse 18 of Romans 9, where it says that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And the hardness of heart is simply this that there are moments in history when individual people or an entire group of people or a nation, because of their response, to sin and embracing it and the rejecting of God that he allows their heart to go where their heart naturally would go anyway and even creates a situation in judgment where they no longer hear his word. Or they may hear it with their ear but it no longer lands on the heart. Where God actually creates in judgment a hardness of heart as if to say, you wanna go there? Then go right ahead and I'll give you exactly what you want. You don't wanna hear from me anymore? go right ahead and see how that works out. In other words, there's a point in a person's life or in a nation's life which is marked by an unwillingness to listen. You can tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. It hits the heart and bounces off. It's like they have a Teflon coating around the soul. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It may describe you before you came to Christ and miraculously the hardness of your heart was broken. It may describe someone close to you. It may describe you, you're here today and you, maybe you're here because your mom invited you to come but the reality is, you, even as you listen, you determine that when you come to church today, it's like inside you've crossed your arms and you're like, I don't care what that guy says, I am not gonna listen to it. And the Bible has a diagnosis for that. It's called the hardness of heart. And you need to know, it's not your mom's fault, it's not my fault, it's actually your fault. Because you've resisted, resisted, and resisted. And the effect of a hardened heart is that you become accustomed to not listening. You become accustomed to doing things that you know are wrong, but they just get easier and easier and easier because it becomes so familiar. The cause of a hard heart is unbelief. Now, the writer of Hebrews has some things to say about a hard heart. Take your Bible, go over to Hebrews chapter 3, or you can just listen to what this text says. The problem of a hard heart begins by unbelief. Listen to what he says in verses 12 and 13 of the book of Hebrews. The writer says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now you need to know that Hebrews was written to a group of followers of Jesus, and then among those followers of Jesus were people who are not followers of Jesus, like any church. There's, there's people here who believe in Jesus, and there's people who don't, and some people who claim to believe in Jesus, but they really don't. And so the writer of Hebrews is extending this, this warning, he's saying things to them that he knows do not apply to all of them, but applies to some of them. So he warns the whole about individuals. So just so you know, just so I'm clear, I do not think that a true follower of Jesus can have a permanently hardened heart. God will discipline you. There'll be an awakening that your heart has been dramatically and supernaturally converted. You cannot fall into definitively a hardened heart. I think there can be seasons when you fall into a hardened heart, but you're going to come out of that because God's going to discipline you until you come out. And yet the writer of Hebrews warns a church about the possibility of a hardness, even, won't, even though he knows it won't necessarily apply to every single one of them. He does so in order to help those who have a hardened heart to realize where they are and also to warn all of them about the scary reality of that condition. It's meant to make you tremble. For instance, I was um, at jury duty a couple months ago. I never had that experience before, and I got, I got crossed off the list. Once they found out I was a pastor, I was like, he's out, you know, I mean, so, maybe, I don't, I don't know why, I presume that's why it was, um, I was scratched off, but while I'm sitting there listening to instructions by the judge, it was scary. I hadn't done anything wrong. I was scared, and I walked out, and I made sure I drove the speed limit. I stopped at every stop sign. I was like, I'm like, I'm like gonna, I'm gonna be really obedient. And and so hearing the instructions, it just created the sense of, whoa, this is like serious. Verse thirteen. Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the great things about you coming together to assemble to worship is that as we exhort one another, it reminds each other about the deceitfulness of sin and we're cautioned and warned about the possibility of sin settling in and creating a calcification of the soul. So friends, sin has a hardening effect on the heart. It happens as People give their lives, their mind, their heart, their body over to sin. The effect is they become futile in their thinking. And Romans says their their foolish heart becomes darkened. And, And while I don't think it can happen to true believers, it certainly happens to unsaved individuals. And then can happen on such a widespread scale that an entire group of people can be characterized by a hardness of heart. A family can be characterized by a hardness of heart. You may look back on your family tree and you know that there's a long legacy of a hardness of heart. It can happen to, a city can be characterized by a hardness of heart. A church can be characterized by a hardness of heart. And the possibility of this hardening condition is a reminder that sin is not just wrong, sin is dangerous. What makes you feel guilty in one season of your life, you keep doing that sin over and over and over, eventually you're not gonna feel so guilty anymore. And that's not good, that's really bad. And it's bad because it's created a hardness of heart. What once was kinda difficult to be blatantly hypocritical or outright judgmental towards other people becomes easier and easier and easier. And it's because the hardness of heart has begun to set in. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning about the same kind of thing that Paul is warning about, that if Israel missed her Messiah, and if Israel was hardened by God, then you better not assume that you or your family or our church or our nation is immune from God's judgment by virtue of hardening of the heart. If it happened to Israel, it can happen anywhere. That's Paul's point. Now, to make that even more evident, go back to Romans 11, it's not just that it happens, it's actually that God is the one who does it. Verses eight to 10 sort of ups the ante a little bit, indicating here not only that the hardness of heart had set in, but God was the one who brought it about. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. You ought to read pa- passages like this and know God is the one who's doing these things and so you ought to look at that and just go, Ooh, man. It ought to make you fear, tremble. The warning about the hardness of heart here becomes even weightier because God is the acting agent. He's the one that pours out judgment. He's the one that's turned against his own people. In 1887, Charles Spurgeon, who pastored a church in London, England, said this about the hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is a great and grievous evil. It exists not only in the outside world, but in many who frequent the courts of the Lord's house. Beneath the robes of religion, many carry a heart of stone. It is more than possible to come to baptism and the sacred supper, to come constantly to the hearing of the word, and even as a matter of form, to attend to private religious duties and yet still have an unrenewed heart, a heart within which no spiritual life palpitates and no spiritual feeling exists. Nothing good can come out of a stony heart. It is barren as a rock. Pharaoh's hard heart was a prophecy that his pride would meet a terrible overthrow. The hammer of vengeance is not far off when the heart becomes harder than an adamant stone. He's warning about the dangers, even the eternal danger, of a hardened heart. So if if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've heard various spiritual truths all your life, and suddenly what I'm saying is creating a different level of anxiety and a sense of, you know, I really need to listen to this? You need to know that is God's grace. And don't you for a moment think, well, when I come back next week, that same thought, that same feeling will be here. Don't you for a moment think that, well, when I turn 40, then I'll start taking spiritual things seriously. The danger of a hardened heart is that day never comes. And the story of Israel is the cautionary tale of the danger of a hardened, gospel-rejecting heart. Now, the hope for Israel is that there is a remnant of believers, thanks to God's grace, but the overall story of the people of God is one of hardness, and that lesson should be a warning that we should all heed, that we should take sin seriously, that you should come on the Lord's Day with a prayerful thought of, God, I want you to speak to my heart today because I need to be spoken to, that you come to the word when you spend time in it, praying even before you read. God, I need to hear from you that you have a healthy sense of fear of where your heart could go apart from the applied word and the grace of God to help you see what's in that word. No true believer can be permanently hardened. However, the example of Israel shows us the possibility of a large group of people whose characteristic is unbelief who then are given a hardened heart. Now what is God doing? If that's the story of Israel, what exactly is God doing? There's a a bigger plan that's in play here. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they fall, that they might fall? By no means. Meaning, no, they didn't stumble in order so that they could be completely wiped away from God's plan. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? So what's he talking about? He, he's saying that there is a, a hope for Israel. Paul looks to the, the moment in history when, when their full inclusion will take place. Now I'll talk about this more next week, but there's a, a lot of different ways to view what that phrase full exclusion mean, or what does it mean that all Israel is saved? And essentially what I think it means is that there's this massive ingathering of the nation of Israel at the end times, where ni- Israel as a nation turns turns to follow hard after the person and work of Christ. They receive him as their true and right savior. And the others think that he comes in, that they come in through the church, or they think that just a spiritual Israel takes place. Both end up at the same point. But the fact of the matter is, is there's something in the future that's going to happen that's going to be unbelievable and glorious? That there will be a day when Israel is as characterized by belief as they are by unbelief right now. That's the point. There's coming today. Now, verse 13, there's a, a shift. Paul speaks directly to the Gentiles. Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. So Paul's going to speak to the Gentiles. He's going to keep trying to reach Gentiles. Why? Well, verse 16 tells us, or 14 tells us, In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, there's going to be a resurrection of Israel, a a remarkable reconversion of God's people. And then he says in verse 16, if the dough offered as fruit, firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he uses two illustrations, one from the offering system, where they took a part of the dough, they offered it, and by implication it meant the whole thing was um, acceptable to God, or the whole thing was holy, or he takes an illustration from Horticulture and the idea if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Now, don't push the illustration too far. Israel is still lost, and it doesn't mean that as a nation she's saved even though she hasn't put her faith in Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, that that remnant has a preserving influence, that the the roots, the promises made to the patriarchs, have a preserving influence on the whole, and he's looking forward to something that's going to happen in the future. And that hope propelled Paul to minister the gospel to the Gentiles with the belief that it eventually would affect the Gentiles, not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews. And so knowing the arc of history, knowing where everything was headed, caused Paul to keep going to synagogues and keep preaching the gospel. Because he was hoping and praying eventually for the return of Israel to the people of God. So knowing the end, provided the means for great boldness and motivation. You know, that's why the Bible has material in it about what happens at the end of the days. It it tells us not only what's happening now, but also where things are headed so that we know that the final word in history has not yet been spoken, and one day Jesus is going to come as king and settle all accounts and take care of all sin and make everything right. And if we know that's how things are going to be, that helps us to know how to live through suffering and hardship and difficulty. Helps us to know how to preach the gospel. I don't, I don't know if, you've, if you're watching the um, new, new little TV miniseries called AD. It's a story of the Bible. Uh, during the time of Acts, I, I hardly ever, I don't think I ever have recommended a TV series. To date, it's been pretty good. In fact, I found myself to be almost spiritually edified. Not almost, actually spiritually edified. I'm watching this story of the early apostles And I'm seeing a character like Peter who is struggling with following Jesus because he's being beaten. He's being hauled up in front of the council and and he's struggling with how do I follow after Jesus. But here's the thing, he's being told that he has to deny Christ. He can't deny Christ. You know why? Because he's actually touched him. He's grabbed a hold of him. He's seen him. He can't deny that Christ is real. And as a result, knowing that Christ has been risen from the dead, he knows where the, even if they kill him, he knows what's going to happen. That he'll be raised from the dead. He's going to live just like Jesus has lived. And as a result, it's been unbelievably um, meaningful just to kind of watch his struggle. So here I am being edified by a television program. And then they cut the commercial and it drives me nuts. It's like, I don't want to hear about do- Dove soap. I mean, I'm worshiping and then I'm lo- lo- But the point is the same, I keep telling my kids, turn it off, I don't want to see it, I just want to see the program. And the point is this, that when you know where the outcome is, you know what the future holds, it, it, it gives you power and the ability to follow Christ in the midst of a world that's broken. Paul magnified his ministry to the Gentiles because of the hope that one day the Jewish people would turn back to their relationship with Jesus. In so doing, we also can know that we have hope, can preach the gospel with greater boldness. Like I said last week, that the resisted gospel is still a gospel worth sharing. When you know who is on the throne. Finally, what does all this mean? We come then to verses 17 and 24. Come back now to the matter of the entitlement mentality where we began. This is where Paul in verses 17 to 24 gets very pastoral. Essentially what he's trying to do is to show the Gentiles who they really are and to be sure they don't forget who they really are and what God has done for them and to them in the person and work of Christ through grace. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So the image that he wants us to see is of an olive tree, and there's this strange-looking branch that's on the olive tree, and it's been grafted in, and it's it's, it's been adhered to it, and what's odd is that when you look at the tree, you know that branch doesn't belong there, and yet while that branch is there, it's still growing, and it's healthy, and it's got all kinds of Life in it. And so you look at the branch and you're like, that doesn't fit, and yet it's full of life. Guess what? If you're a Gentile, not a Jew, that's me, that's you. We're the weird branch that's been grafted in in the midst of this olive tree. And what Paul wants to remind the Gentiles is that look, this olive tree image is only because of God's kindness and because of his grace. You ought not look at yourself and look at the rest of the tree and see the tree and go, silly tree, broken off, look at us, we're the ones grafted in. He wants to remind them that it's only because of God's grace that you are where you are. When you look at your family lineage and you see the hardness of heart that's set in in various family members, and, and yet you're the exception to that rule, I just want to remind you that you're an exception to that rule, not because you're exceptional, but because God has been incredibly kind you know, one of the strange things about going off to college is that you realize how non-exceptional you really are. I remember, you know, I was a decent basketball player. Started, made all city, went out to college. That's nothing, right? Looking around, and these guys are faster, stronger, taller, bigger. And I was like, I quit, and I gave up because... <laughs> It's like I I don't want to spend four years having really good seats all year, right? So I just and what happens is you think you're really good, then you get to another level, you realize you're not, not so exceptional. And what Paul wants to do is to remind you: you're not that exceptional when it comes to God's grace. It's amazing that you received it, but don't you for a minute somehow think that you are exceptionally graced because you're an exceptional person? The Gentiles have become the recipients of the blessings of salvation. They've been grafted into the olive tree. They're they're receiving the promises in, in the new covenant that were made to Israel. Now both Jews and Gentiles are part of what I would call the people of God. And the central characteristic of the people of God is that they believe. And the only reason they believe is because God has been kind to them. So what does Paul say? Two warnings. Here's the first one. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The Jews might have been tempted to look disparagingly at, or the the Gentiles, rather, might have been tempted to look disparagingly at the Jewish people as they consider themselves to be the recipients of God's grace. They could, they could be tempted to conclude that they're superior. They could conclude that they're better. They could conclude that they're spiritual. And in being grafted in, they could become very quickly arrogant and then ironically fall into the exact same trap that Israel fell into. Because how did Israel get to the point where she was? Because she thought, well, we're the people of God, and we had our own righteousness and our own standard. We got the Bible or the the Torah, and we are just going to follow the law. And before they know it, God had cut them off. And you know how that happens? It happens because they're human, that's why. Because human beings are notorious for taking anything that doesn't naturally That's been taking things that have been given to us and then making ourselves seem as though we're better than others. It happens socioeconomically. Word has happened with race. Happens spiritually. We're notorious. Just look around and you'll see a pattern of human beings of taking things that they had no control over and then saying, this makes me better than you. And Paul says, don't you dare do that when it comes to your walk with God. They were grafted in And it was only because of God's grace. So when you read the story of Israel, when you see what's happening in this text, if you're a follower of Jesus, it'll make you tremble and realize, God, that could be me were it not for your grace. One of the reasons why you need to know history and church history is because there is a tendency to think that your generation, my generation, is nailing it compared to other generations. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. Or you think that your generation has it all figured out. This is why parents, when your kids leave, and they return, you get get smarter over the years as they figure out, man, my mom and dad knew a lot more than what I thought they did. This time you can quote C.S. Lewis to them and say, that's because you're chronologically a snob. You can tell them that if you want. (laughs) The point is that C.S. Lewis would say, read books from the past at least 100 years ago because you'll be surprised how common it is that human beings repeat the history of their lives. They, they receive grace, they receive mercy in the Bible, and they get full of themselves, overconfident, they think they're better than other people, and they begin to not trust in the Lord anymore, and so God has to smite them and break them and judge them. J.I. Packer articulated this sort of heretical mindset that's so prevalent with um, this chronological snobbery. Here's how he put it. The newer is the truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward. Every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. The point is this, be careful. Be careful that you don't read the Bible and forget that God's grace is what brought you this far. Don't stop marveling at the shocking reality of what God has done for you. Remind yourself often about who you were and who you are. That's what communion's about. That's what the Lord's table is about. It's a reminder of what we really need and what God had to do in order to conquer our hearts. And the test comes When you read something in the Bible or you see someone in the community or a friend who blows it and you are tempted to think, I'm glad I'm not like that. And Paul would say, you shouldn't say things like that. Instead, your language should be more like, you know what, without God, that's exactly what I would do. So do not be arrogant. Here's the second thing the text tells us. Do not be overconfident. Verse 19, then you will say the branches were cut off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. In other words, don't be confident in the fact that you've received God's grace. Instead, keep believing, stay strong in faith. So do not become proud, but fear or stand in awe. And here's why. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, the God of Israel is the same God who's on the throne. And if you begin to think that you deserve his grace and begin taking for granted all the grace that he's given to you, don't be surprised if the same thing happens to your church or your country or your family that happened to the people of Israel. If it happened to Israel, it can happen anywhere. Verse 22 takes it even further. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. God is both kind and he is severe. Kindness towards those, or severity rather, towards those who have fallen but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Verse 23, and even if they, this is talking about the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. And for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, don't give up on the people of Israel. God can bring them back to himself, and Paul says, and one day he will. And what's more, and don't you dare for a moment get all stuck in the beauty of being grafted in and forget there's a bigger story of God's grace. Don't be overconfident thinking, how silly those Israelites becoming all proud of themselves and you too end up falling into the same trap. The dividing line between mercy and justice is what you've done with belief. If you believe in Christ, it's all mercy. If you refuse to believe in him, It's all justice. If the Jews believe, they could be grafted in. If you believe, you could be grafted in. See, as human beings, there is this very strong tendency in our hearts to develop an entitlement mentality. It happens in kids. It can happen as it relates to your soul. And when it happens as it relates to your soul, it's a really, really important thing to consider. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that all of the good things in life that you enjoy, and you, I'm sure you've received all sorts of blessings, maybe the, the giftings that you have, the stuff that you're just talented beyond belief with other, uh, that other people don't have, the way in which maybe your career is taken off, or, or just even the beauty of, 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 of a warm, sunny day, or any kind of blessing that you've received at all, you need to know And I think somewhere in your heart you probably know this, that the fact of the matter is is that you don't deserve any of those kindnesses. You don't deserve any of them. And somewhere I think in your heart you know it. In fact, the Bible puts it this way, that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. That beautiful sunshine, the, the career that you have, the giftings that you have, those haven't come from within you. Those have come outside of you as a marker to point you to someone beyond yourself, namely God. And if you take those gifts and you assume that I have these gifts because I'm so great and God is so pleased with me, you'll confuse the gifts and the giver of the gifts and end up using that which was meant to turn you to God. It actually turns you to yourself. I say this gently, but with great conviction. Hell will be populated with scores of people who are shocked that they're there. Look at all these, look how good I was, look at all these things, I'm clearly God is happy with me, all these blessings, and the reality is no, 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 you've, you take those gifts and you've made them about you, that's the problem, and the Bible says those gifts are meant to show you that God exists and that you don't deserve them, and ultimately for you to turn to the person and work of Jesus, and can I just encourage you that if if there's any inkling within you to say, you know what, I'm interested in that, and I wanna hear more about that, don't you leave this room assuming that the next time you come back, you'll think the same thought or feel the same way. Because you never know when you cross over the line and you hear the same truth and it lands and it leaves, instead of landing and staying. If you're a follower of Jesus, this passage, friends, should make us tremble. I don't think, if you're a true follower of Jesus, I don't think you can lose your salvation. But I do think this text is a sober warning that there is a great danger in assuming that you're a believer. This passage calls us to self-examine ourselves. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let the one who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. This text calls us to not be arrogant or to be presumptuous. It cautions us with being so familiar with spiritual truths that we lose the centrality of what it means to trust in Jesus. Just because you know the name Jesus or you're around spiritual truths doesn't mean that your heart is ready to receive the grace of God's word. This text reminds us that everything we have is only because of our faith in Christ. And the only hope for our past, our present, or our future is not our spiritual heritage, our ethnicity, our story, our only hope is Christ. So believing in Christ cannot be something that you take for granted. You can't allow believing in Christ to become something that's somehow now normal and, and somehow it's, it's not the ultimate reality. Instead, who Jesus is and believing in him is everything because without that we have nothing. Because at the end of the day, being grafted into God's grace is only because of the finished work of Jesus And if you for a moment think that either you deserved it or that grace somehow becomes overly common to you, you could be guilty of spiritual entitlement, thinking that you either deserved what's happened to you or that somehow you've earned it and neither are true. Without Jesus, we have nothing. And yet with him and because of him, We have everything and we can never lose the awe of what that means. Lord Jesus, from you and through you and to you are all things. To you belongs glory forever and ever. That's the way Paul ends this wonderful chapter and that's where we end today. Father, forgive us for being arrogant or overconfident. And I pray today that you would land this text on hearts that are ready to receive it. Help us to take inventory even now. The way we're gonna close our service this morning, there'll be some folks up here afterwards who would count it a joy to pray with you. No matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, as well for those of you who are struggling with the reality of Mother's Day because of the loss of maybe a mother or a child or the lack of being able to conceive a child, these folks would love to pray with you. They're here for that very purpose. What we're gonna do to close is just give you a few moments of quiet reflection, and in this time, I want you simply to evaluate the condition of your heart and its hardness. And maybe you need to repent or turn or say something like, Lord, would you soften my heart today? And then when the music begins after our time of silence, you can be dismissed. Let's just quietly reflect on God's grace to us.